Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Hey, good, uh, good evening. It's hard not to say good morning here. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Matt Cassidy. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Covenant Church. I want to welcome you to Grace. We love having you here if you're a visitor. Um, let me tell you a little bit, just some things that we should do uh, before we get going. First, uh, if you have a cell phone, you probably do. Why don't we turn those off? or whatever, airport mode, or whatever you need to do, please. Uh, if you have uh, children that get restless, we are broadcasting this into our family room, which is right dead center, uh, just behind the Welcome Center, just outside the doors. By all means, um, go there if the kids get just kind of antsy. We, um, what we're going to do today, or this evening, is we're asking Cliff to do what he does, you know, several times a year for the last 30 years, and that is just to answer questions that people might have um, whether they're longtime followers of Jesus Christ or they're trying to figure out whether it's a reasonable thing to do to follow Christ. And he wants to answer those questions. He hopes that you have uh, a tender and open heart towards uh, following the truth. Socrates, in a lot of ways, is a great example for all of us. He, he pursued truth at, and, and it led wherever it, it did. It, it, it led to his death. And he drank that hemlock because though all of his friends wanted him to leave, and live, he thought that that wouldn't be true. And so you, you follow truth wherever it leads, and you pay the bills because no matter what the bills you pay for following truth, it's less than living a lie. Cliff wants to help us live a life that's true. We want you to be bold in answering, asking the questions. What we're asking, what we'll do today, just protocol, is we've thought about roaming mics and that sort of thing. We, we felt like we just couldn't do that adequately. So we're going to ask you to come up to the microphones, stands. Um, don't try to take the microphone off the stand because we've already tried that. They're kind of, they're there for a while. They're, they're practically glued in. And so if you'll just adjust them to your height and then ask the question so that everyone can hear and then Cliff will take it from there, okay? Let me, if you don't mind, if, uh, I'd like to open our time with a word of prayer and ask God's spirit to work on our hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, we, um, we come to you now as owners and makers of our soul that you would cause us to long for things that are true because you are true, that you would cause us to long for things that um, are the fulfillment of our, our ultimate desires for love and to be known and to know other things like you and other, another human being, that we would long for these things and you would cause us to be satisfied with nothing less than what you've provided for us. So, Lord, open our hearts. Make us vulnerable to hear you this evening. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here at Grace this morning and you had the privilege of hearing Cliff Connectly, Cliff, come on up. Um, Cliff's been around doing this craziness for a number of years. I would love to sit around a campfire sometime and just hear stories about <laughs> 30 years of traveling the campuses of the United States with... Um, just people asking any question, right? Right. Okay. Well, here we go. I hope we, All right, brother. Hope we have a good time. Matt, thank you so much. All right, I'm going to speak for a few minutes, and then we'll open it up for question, answer, agreement, disagreement. And if you disagree with anything I say, please feel free to tell me. I uh, thrive in that environment. This past week, I was reading John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says some pretty difficult things. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you got no part of me. And people said, whoa, I'm out of here. Goodbye, Jesus. So a lot of the disciples, the followers of Christ, are leaving. So Jesus turns to Peter and says, you're going to leave also? 
And I love what Peter says. Peter says, who should we turn to? Now, often people ask me, why do you follow Christ? And it's not the best reason, but I'm like Peter. The options stink. Think about the options, though. Obviously, the options in the culture I grew up in are money. Live for money. I understand. Money can bring a lot of perks. Nothing wrong with money. God made us to work, and money symbolizes and stands for the work that we do, and that is good. But to live for money, to think that the ultimate purpose of human existence is to pile up money, you've got to be kidding me. Relationships are far more important. A husband, a wife, a parent, a child, a friend, a roommate, a teammate, far more important than money. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid and poison the rest. Excuse me? Yeah, man, that's a purpose of my life. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid and poison the rest. Or the bumper sticker, the one that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. You've got to be kidding me. You think the ultimate purpose of a human life is to make money? What's a midlife crisis? Midlife crisis is a guy who finally reaches success as he's defined it, but he begins asking the deeper questions of life like, what is the purpose of my life? And he begins to realize, I've been leaning the ladder of my life up against the wrong wall. I thought the purpose of life was to make money, and I've made a lot of it. But life is empty now. There's a void. So yes, money's important, no question about it. But to think that the ultimate purpose is money, give me a break. No, Cliff, it's, it's pleasure. That's really what life is all about. Really, stimulating your nerve endings. Yes, God has given us taste budge. Yes, God has given us a central nervous system, and we can experience piercing pleasure, and that's an incredible gift from Him. But to think that the purpose of human existence is to stimulate your nerve endings? So then your life is over when you get Parkinson's. When your life begins to fall apart, your body begins to fall apart, life is over. Just examine the options. Jesus, if we don't go to you, who are we going to go to? And what is the evidence that the option we turn to is reliable? The evidence is, based on a sinless life, based on amazing ethical teachings that have the ring of truth. Robert Coles at Harvard pointed out, all the ethical teachings over the past 2,000 years are simply footnotes to the Sermon on the Mount. He's right. The ethical genius of the one who gave the Sermon on the Mount is piercing. Thirdly, you watch the way he died. At the moment of the most excruciating pain and agony, as he's nailed to a wooden crossbeam, instead of cursing his enemies, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The evidence is he was in total touch with reality. And then fourthly, he rose from the dead. He is the basis for hope. He's the basis for confidence that indeed there is life after death. So we all go to a funeral, and we all say, we're going to see him again. You've got to be kidding me. You told me there's no God. If there is no God, you're not going to ever see your loved one again. So don't go to a funeral and tell me that you're going to see him again one day, because there's a great spirit in the sky, and we're all going to go to some hereafter and see each other again. No. If you tell me there is no God, then let's be real honest with each other. It's over with death. 
I know one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And the reason that I believe in him is not because I don't like funerals. The reason I believe in him is because three days after he died, he rose from the dead. That is the basis of hope, of a confidence that indeed there is life after death. All right, that's all I had to say. Why don't you take the issues that are in your mind that you have or that people have fired at you and just come up to these microphones and let me have it? And I'm going to say that's a great question. Would you please take that to Pastor Cassidy, and he will answer that just fine. Thank you. Hi, Cliff. Hi. Uh, you referenced this earlier in your sermon this morning. Um, Matthew nineteen twenty four. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, now, I know we are not all called to renounce all of our worldly possessions, but how do we live like that? Okay, good question. How do we live like that? You know, I'm really embarrassed the way uh, a couple hundred years ago in the United States, people said, I believe in Jesus. And come on, slaves, come on to church with me Sunday. You can sit up there in the balcony. I'm sitting here saying, you've got to be kidding me. You had your faith in Christ and you enslaved people. What were you thinking? You talk about a blind spot. Well, I've got to ask the same question to myself. What are my blind spots? 200 years from now, as Christians look back at Cliff, what are they going to be asking? Cliff, you fell asleep on the switch, bud. I'm afraid you're getting right to the issue. Materialism. Now, the Bible clearly teaches that money and the physical are good. Gnosticism taught the physical is evil, it's made by a second-rate God, and therefore either cut loose and be promiscuous or be an ascetic. But ultimately, the body doesn't matter. And the Bible contradicts that and says, no, the body is good. It's a gift from God. Take care of it. And money is good. But how do you handle your money? Well, I like what John Wesley said. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said, make all you can, save all you can, and give away as much as you can. Thank you. He who has been stealing, Paul writes, must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. Yes, we make money. Yes, we have savings. Yes, we provide for our children and grandchildren. But we also have to figure out how much can we give away. I like that. Carrie. All right. Um, so if heaven is perfect, um, how could an angel become dissatisfied? And if... God didn't make evil, then how could that turn into greed? So I guess essentially I'm asking, um, how could somebody be unhappy in heaven, and where does evil come from if it was born of something other than Adam and Eve? Great question. Two great questions have been asked right off the bat. All right. Ultimately, I do not know why God allowed evil. For thousands of years, philosophers, theologians, far more intelligent than I'll ever be, that's for sure, have never been able to come up with an ultimate answer. But I lean towards believing that God, who is all-powerful, chose to limit himself by giving us free will. Why? Well, think about it. If you take away free will, you take away love. Let's say you've been dating a guy for the past year, and he's communicated that he loves you. 
What are you going to feel if tonight his father calls you up and says, no, excuse me, not his father. What happens if tonight your dad tells you, I've been paying the guy a hundred bucks a week to date you? Whoa. You'd be really bummed, wouldn't you? Why? Because love, in order to be real, has to be free. If it's not free, it's not love. And so God takes this limited risk and he creates us with a free will. All right, but heaven's perfect, so why would someone with a free will want to rebel against God? Because there's a thrill in being God. And I want the thrill. And so Adam and Eve essentially wanted the thrill, the same way I have, of being God. What's moral relativism? Moral relativism is deifying my opinion. Moral relativism is saying there's no absolute right and no absolute wrong. Guess who defines right and wrong? Me. It's deifying my own opinion. Playing God. And so Satan, Lucifer, Adam and Eve chose to play God. And it's thrilling. And all of us know the thrill. Because we've all done it. And it's very attractive. And it was funny, after this morning's ser- uh, service, one a gentleman out in the foyer came up and said, okay, well then why if we're going to be free? Are we going to be free in heaven when we get there? And if so, how, why aren't we just going to start this whole mess over again? Great question. And as a good buddy of mine says, the reason we're not going to want to start it all over again is because your mom died of Parkinson's cliff. Your dad died of heart, congestive heart failure. There's so much suffering in this world that if you seriously consider sinning in heaven, I'm going to come up to you and say, buddy, don't you remember what the consequences are of sin? You really want to get into that again? Now, I don't know that because the Scriptures never communicate that. It's a very hard question you ask. That's how I begin to think it through. Thanks, Gary. Yes, sir. What's up, Cliff? So I, I really have wondered this sort of all my life, and... Um... It started in, um, in Genesis 2, uh, verse 15, where it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it from it you will, sure, you will surely die. So my question, um, why do you think it was God's original intent for us not to know the difference between good and evil? Great question. Very hard question. One of my favorite verses in Genesis, Genesis 2.15. Notice that work is not part of the curse of the fall. Notice that God created us to work before the fall. Work is good. Thank God it's Friday. It's not a biblical attitude. God created me to work. He created you to work. And we know that. One of the most important things to do with a street person, in my opinion, is to help him get a job. And I'm really excited because a very successful businessman in the church where I pastor just this past week had lunch with me and said, Cliff, I want to start a business here at this church to help the elderly so that we can employ a bunch of the unemployed guys in this church and women to take care of the elderly. That's good. God created this to work. Oh, man, I'm looking forward to going to heaven because in heaven I'm going to sit on a cloud and strum a harp for eternity. I don't get it into sitting on clouds. I'm not much of a harp player. No. The Bible says that in heaven, we're not going to be sitting on a cloud strumming a harp for eternity. We're going to be serving God. We're going to be working. And that is good. Second part of your question is, okay, but what about God being against knowledge? God says, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, what's God against knowledge? No. God is not against knowledge. God gave us a conscience and a rational mind. And the way I interpret that is the following. 
I can know with my mind that murdering you and bathing my hands in your blood is wrong. I'm an idiot. If I have to say, let me, let me check it out. I want to make sure. And I go ahead and murder you and bathe my hands in your blood. And now I say, oh, now I know from experience that murdering and bathing my hands in your blood is wrong. So when God speaks against knowledge there in Genesis chapter 2, he's not speaking against intellectual knowledge or rational thinking. He's talking about experiential knowledge. Adam and Eve had a conscience. They understood the difference between right and wrong, but they hadn't experienced it. And when they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's not like they gained some intellectual knowledge. Rather, they gained experiential knowledge. They rebelled against God, and they experienced rebellion. That's how I worked through that passage. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for raising that. Yes, sir. Hey, Cliff. Um, I've never known a day when I didn't believe in God, but what would you say to someone who's an agnostic? They've spent their whole life reading the Bible. They've been praying for faith. They've read the apologetics, and they still don't have faith. They just do not believe that God exists. What, what would right. you, how would you respond to that? You bet. My response to an agnostic is simply the following. It's an intellectual option. It's a practical impossibility. An agnostic is someone who says, I don't know whether there's a God or not. Fine, you can say that to me intellectually, but you can't live it out. Why? Because every day you have to make ethical decisions. Every day you have to establish priorities. Every day you have to decide what's going to motivate me, what's a good motive, what's a bad motive. The ethical decisions you make, the ambitions you choose, and the priorities you set in your life tattle what you believe about life. What's important? What are you living for? The only people who don't have faith are those who are in the process of committing suicide. In my hometown, a bunch of guys get up at 5 o'clock in the morning catch a 6 o'clock train into Manhattan to work on Wall Street. If that guy has the audacity to look at me and say, I'm agnostic, I say, you've got to be kidding me. You get up every morning at 5 o'clock, you catch a 6 o'clock train into Wall Street, you come back beaten up at 8 or 9 o'clock at night. Let's get one thing straight. You are a highly motivated person. You are living for something. Well, guess what? That's true of everybody. See, everybody has faith, meaning by that everybody has a worldview, meaning by that everybody has to answer the question, where do I come from? Why is that question so important? Because it's the way you answer the question of, well, what am I worth? Do I have any value as a human being? Everybody has to answer the question, what's the purpose of my life? What am I going to devote my life to? Oh, I'm going to go to UT. I'm going to get a great education. Well, good. Well, let's be real honest. You're not agnostic. You're a highly motivated person. UT is a very fine school. You're going to get a very fine education, but you will work. Something's motivating you. You believe something is worth your effort. Everybody has to thirdly answer the question, well, now that I'm here, how am I going to live my life ethically? Am I going to steal? Am I going to cheat on my IRS? Am I going to cheat the IRS on my tax form this coming year? Or am I not? We see the decisions you make tattle what you believe about reality. And then everybody has to make a decision and answer the question, what after death? Is there a life after death or no? And you see, the point is, if you believe that Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa are in the same place, the fertilizer pit, if that's where we all go, the fertilizer pit, then ultimately it doesn't matter whether you're Adolf Hitler II or whether you're Mother Teresa II. And life is ultimately meaningless. So if you're going to believe that, I want to watch you live it out. And that's why Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German atheistic philosopher, used to pour scorn 
on his fellow atheists or agnostics who used to say, well, I'm not sure about God or there definitely is no God. But then they grabbed the goody-goodies from God, like, but my life has purpose and my life has worth. And you know something? I really shouldn't abuse little innocent kids. I should be decent to them because that's really important. He said, no. If there is no God, live it out. Life is a crapshoot. And whether you want to be Adolf Hitler II or Mother Teresa II really is ultimately insignificant. Just choose. And whatever you choose is your choice, and that's cool. So you see, the, there's the impossibility of agnosticism. You can't live it out. You have to commit yourself to something. You do. You want to. Except if you're committing suicide. Then I think you're being consistent intellectually. And you're saying, you know something? I don't know. I don't know if life's an accident or probably is an accident. And I don't know if there's a God or I don't know if there's no God. And therefore, why continue to suck wind? Why continue to make the effort to live? And that's why Albert Camus said the only question modern man must answer is, why not commit suicide? I've spoken for 30 years now on university campuses around this country, and I've only met one and a half students who took their atheism or their agnosticism seriously. One was a Russian student at Northwestern University up in Chicago, and he said, you're right, Cliff, there's, there's no God. And because there is no God, I realize that life is ultimately meaningless. He said, but I really don't appreciate my American university friends who are atheists because they don't have the guts to face it, to live it out. I do live it out. I said, okay, I respect you intellectually for your consistency. The other half was a student at UC San Diego. He stepped out of the crowd and said, yeah, I'm an atheist, and I realize that life is meaningless, and I realize that, uh, therefore, suicide is an option. But my mom gets real concerned for me when I start to consider suicide, so I get out of my atheism and stop thinking about suicide to please my mom. Good. Thanks for your honesty. See, it's impossible, really, to be an agnostic because you've got to live for something. You can't just float. So that's basically how I go about trying to rattle a person's cage on that issue. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, I have been around a day or two, and over about the last 40-or-plus years, I think we've been really bombarded by the concept of multiverse and that there's every kind of, of place to exist or multiple universes, I guess is what I'm trying to think of. And our movies and all of these things do it to the point where there are people who actually espouse this as the truth, that they live in multiple universes. I know someone who's really important to me, that highly educated guy, and I'm sitting here thinking, and so you believe in the things that Spielberg said or, you know, those kinds of mm -hmm. things? So it's not that he's, or the person is, that he is really opposed to speaking about God. He just thinks that's really childish and, and those kind of things. I need a really strong academic but true argument for this, other than the fact that's really not even a sensible I mean, he believes he exists in two universes. So can you address something about that? All right. <laughs> well, well I, that well, wasn't a good question, but I want to be able to speak to that with a person. Right. You okay. bet. All right. First of all, there's no evidence that they're multi-universes. So the whole idea that they're multi-universes, fine, it's an interesting theory, but there's no evidence to support it. Second point, let's play poker. I want to play poker with a guy who says we live in multi-universes and therefore anything's possible. And in my poker game with a guy, I want to cheat. I want to deal. I'm going to deal 
ten hands in a row to myself, a perfect, perfect hand of cards. And then when he's looking for a six-shooter to blow me away because I'm cheating and stealing his money, I want to say to him, wait a second, there are a plethora of different universes, and we just happen to live in a universe where I can deal myself ten perfect hands in a row to beat you and get your money. Baloney. The evidence is not that we live in multi-universes, and guess what? One of these universes so happens to be a place where I can deal ten perfect hands to myself in poker and whoop you in poker and get all your money. No. The evidence is I'm cheating, and that's why you reach for your gun to blow me away if I've taken too much of your money. Another illustration that I like to use with that type of thinking is... Um, if I stand before a firing squad of expert marksmen and the commandant says, ready, aim, fire, and these ten marksmen shoot at me, point-blank range, and they all miss. So the commander's ticked and he says, ready, load, ready, aim, fire, boom, they all shoot again. They all miss, and I'm standing there still living. If the commander comes up to me and says, gosh, what's going on? Why are you still alive? And if I look the commander in the face and say, because we're having this conversation, that's idiocy. No, it just didn't happen by chance. Those expert marksmen missed on purpose. So to posit this ridiculous idea that there's multi-universes out there and that all types of things just happen by chance and to explain my life as, well, it's just this type of universe. No. There are not many universes out there. We live in one universe and there's no evidence that there are other universes. Okay. It also gets into then, okay, but then why do you believe God exists? And I would say because the evidence points to God's existence. Oh, come on, Cliff, prove to me that God exists. Oh, fine, I'll prove to you God exists if you first prove to me that your mom is not just fattening you up to drop arsenic in your tea. <laughs> to prove means to show it cannot be another way. I can't prove anything in life. But that doesn't mean I stop thinking. I, as a thinking human being, base my life on evidence. The evidence is my mother is not fattening me up to drop arsenic in my tea. The evidence is my mother really does love me. That's why I don't bring the chemistry kit to the breakfast table. Now, what's the evidence that God exists? Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a cause. The best cause for the universe is a living being, an uncaused cause. That's God. Secondly, order and design point to an intelligent designer. If you and I are going through the Dakotas and all of a sudden we come around a corner and, wow, there's Mount Rushmore. And if I turn to you and say, wow, isn't it amazing the way the water just trickled over the rock? By gollies, that's George up there. And there's Abe. And good old rough rider Teddy Roosevelt. By gollies, didn't the water do an amazing job trickling over the rock face? You're going to call the men in the little white coats to come and fetch me and get me to a mental hospital. Why? Because order and design demands an intelligent mind. Thirdly, my atheist friends believe in a miracle, a bunch of miracles. 
My atheist friends believe that life comes from non-life, that the rational comes from the non-rational, that consciousness comes from the unconscious. Those are all miracles. The only problem is my atheist friends don't have a miracle worker. There's no God. But those are miracles. Those do not normally happen. So it's because of evidence like that that I'm convinced that God exists. I'm convinced that there is this universe. I don't have the faintest idea whether there are other universes. But I do know that we've got this universe that we live in. The evidence is clear on that. And so therefore, I as a thinking human being am responsible to live the best life I can in this universe. Thanks for raising that. Yes, sir. Okay, so um, I saw that in Genesis 6, verse 5 through 7, it says... And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And repented the Lord that he made man on earth, and it grieved him at his heart. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, and both man and and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Why don't you think that God actually just went through with a plan and just, just... wiped us out because we were repenting him and made just another thing because our only purpose was really to work and to love him and we were doing the opposite okay i'm sorry i didn't follow your thing your, your question ask it again why didn't i got the got, passage but hmm? yeah i got your passage of scripture which was excellent yeah. now what's the question why didn't god just wipe us out why didn't he keep us even though our only purpose was to really love and work and we were kind of doing the opposite Why didn't God just wipe us out? Because God is a God of grace. God is a God who longs to live in relationship. God is a God who delights in forgiving. God actually has a passion for you and a passion for me that we live in relationship with him. And so he delights in forgiving, in reconciliation, in bringing two estranged parties back together again. So that's why he just doesn't wipe us out. But he does judge. And you read the scriptures real well, sir. And I'd encourage you to read Genesis chapter 18, a few chapters after Genesis 6, where Abraham is standing over Sodom and Gomorrah, and God says, I'm going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah because of the evil that they've done. And Abraham has a debate with God. It's a fascinating prayer, a series of prayers that Abraham gives to God. Well, what if there are 50 righteous people? Are you going to wipe it all out? God says, no, not if they're 50. What about 45? No, not if they're 45. 40? No, not if they're 40. 35? No, not if they're 35. 30? No, not if they're 30. 20? No. 10? No. Why didn't Abraham keep going? 9, 8, 7, 6 righteous people alive. Then 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 you're still going to wipe it out? I don't know. But obviously Abraham was struggling with the justice of God. And Abraham becomes convinced that God indeed is just. But he also knows he's forgiving and merciful. And that he delights in restoring broken relationships. South Africa, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. A white police officer named Officer Vanderbrook is being tried. Truth and Reconciliation Commission says, Officer Vanderbrook, the evidence is you took this black South African woman's husband. You arrested him. You brought him out to a party outside the township where he lived. And you roasted him over a spit of fire, and you burned him to ashes. 
Then a year later, you came and took this black South African woman's 18-year-old boy, and you brought him outside the town, and you did the same thing. At a party with other white police officers, you burned the guy to a crisp. And then the Truth and Reconciliation Commission looked at the black South African woman and said, what do you want us to do to this white South African police officer, Officer Vanderbrook? And the black South African woman thought a moment, and she said, I got three requests. First is, I ask that Officer Vanderbrook bring me to the place outside our township where he burned my husband and my boy to death so that I can gather up their ashes and give them a proper burial. Secondly, he took my family away, and I got a lot of mothering left in me, so I ask that once a month he come to my place in the township so I can mother him. And thirdly, I ask that right now, in order for him to understand that my forgiveness is genuine and real, I ask that he allow me to hug him right now. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission said, said, commission said okay. So this black South African woman stands up and walks across this courtroom, and as she's headed towards this white police officer, Vanderbrook, he faints dead away. And someone starts singing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Okay, that's what Jesus revealed the heart of God is like. He longs to reconcile. He longs to restore broken relationships. He's the ultimate peacemaker. And so, no, God does not want anybody to perish, Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 9. He wants everyone to come to Christ and be saved and have eternal life. But he will not force us against our will. So, yes, sir, he does judge, but he delights in forgiving broken people. One more quote for you. Eugene O'Neill wrote, We're all born broken. Life is about healing. The grace of God is the glue. That's very biblical. We're all born broken. We all got problems. Life is about healing. The grace of God is the glue. Thanks for raising that question. Yes, sir. Um, I don't really still understand what heaven's going to be like. Good question. And my 90-year-old mother who's dying of Parkinson's asks me a lot of questions about heaven, and I can't answer them. I've got to say, Mom, I honestly don't know. Because the only source of information I have about heaven is the Bible and Jesus. And I personally feel that for the past 2,000 years, too many Christians have added to the Bible. And every time Christians add to the Bible, they get egg all over their face. You know, there was a really brilliant scientist named Galileo. And he did better science than the scientists of his day. Galileo showed that the earth is not the center of the solar system. The sun is. But the Aristotelian scientists of Galileo's day thought that the earth was the center of the solar system. And when Galileo did better science than them, and he beat them, they went running to the church, and they said, there's a heretic running around out there. His name's Galileo. He's contradicting the Bible. He's teaching that the earth is not the center of the solar system. The sun is. And the church made a humongous mistake. They sided with the Aristotelian scientists, and they went after Galileo. Tragic. Where does the Bible say that the earth is the center of the solar system? It never says that. Never once. The church added to the Bible. The church sided with the Aristotelian scientists. And they got egg all over their face. 
So what is heaven going to be like? Ultimately, I don't know. But what I do know is the following. First of all, heaven is a place. John 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to be with me so that where I am, there you may be also. All right, so if heaven is a place, it's not an idea, it's not an illusion, it's not a fantasy, it's not a myth, it's a place. Second point, I lean towards believing that it includes life on this planet. Jesus, when he returns a second time, is going to redo this earth. It's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, but also life in another dimension. God is here. Right now, God is here. Well, Cliff, why can't you see him? Because he's in another dimension. He's a spiritual being. So I can't see God, neither can you. But he's here, but he's in another dimension. Well, what's that like? I'll tell you what it's like. I know you don't remember this, neither do I. But when you and I were in our mom's womb, when we were living in our mother's womb, if someone would have told us, you know, there's a world out there. And to get in that world, you're going to have to follow, you're going to have to go down a very narrow birth canal. But on the other side of that very narrow birth canal, there's a whole new world. We just said, you know something? You're an idiot. <laughs> we enjoy the world we're living in right now. It's very warm. The temperature's constant. We have all our meals provided for. We will stay right here, thank you. And then we all made a very, very difficult, painful passage. Not just for us, but for our mothers down that birth canal, and we exploded into a brave new world. Well, that's the way heaven's going to be like. Now, one of my favorite verses about heaven is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, where we read, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, mind has not conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. So, heaven's a place. It probably includes another dimension. Thirdly, it's going to be really cool. Why? Because the God who gave you and me the ability to enjoy life and to enjoy pleasure, gosh, he's preparing a place for us where there will be more pleasure, more fulfillment, more goodness than even here on this earth. And so it's going to be really, really cool. Fourth point is we're going to have bodies in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Go home and read that chapter, okay? You do that for me? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay. I want you to read that chapter, Okay. Because Paul is pointing out there's going to be a new body that God is going to give you when he returns. Well, I can hardly wait because I don't even know your name. But in heaven, you're going to be you, and I'm going to be me, and I'm going to have the privilege of getting to know you better. We'll have a long time, eternity, to do that. And then finally, I referred several times to my mom, who's 90 years old and is dying of Parkinson's. You know, my mom taught me how to play tennis, and she used to blow the ball right by me. She played four sports in college. I barely played one. She was quite an athlete. But her body has been torn apart by Parkinson's. She's going to have a new body. I'm going to be able to see her. I was debating a philosophy professor at Cal State Chico out in Northern California, and his philosophy professor says, you know, you Christians are really stupid because you talk about a resurrection body. Well, you know, I only knew my grandma as an 80-year-old woman. So if she has a 30 or 40 or 50-year-old body up in heaven, I'm not even going to be able to recognize my grandma. So the whole thing is a joke. I said, ma'am, guess what? I really don't care what age my mama's body is up in heaven. I do want to see my mother. And what age her body is, I really could give a rip. The promise of Christ is 
you will have a new body in heaven, and I will, that he will give us when Jesus returns a second time. Thanks for raising that good question. Yes, ma'am. Hi, Cliff. What is the difference in the afterlife for those who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior early in life versus late in life? Meaning, is there a difference in the afterlife, heaven, for those who obey it all and live their lives for Christ versus those who come to Jesus later in life or in the moments before their death? Some may ask, what's the point of living a life for Jesus if he will forgive all of their sins just for believing in him? Good question. I would love to get to know you. Well, it's something else. 20 years from now. <laughs> what? Yeah, I would really like to get to know you. Not now, but I'd love to get to know you just before I die. I'll give you five minutes just before I check out of here. Really, Cliff? And you're, you think you're genuine? Oh, yeah. I really would like to get to know you. For the last 30 seconds of that I'm sucking wind on this planet, I'd love to talk with you. Cliff, you are one flaming hypocrite. So the idea that, well, yeah, I think I'll accept Jesus just before I check out of here. Excuse me? Heaven is a place for those who genuinely love God. Now, the thief on the cross genuinely responded to Christ, and in his dying moment, he put his faith in Christ, and he will be in heaven. But if someone thinks they can say, well, you know, I'm going to sow my wild oats, live my own life, and then just before I check out of here, I'm going to put my faith in Christ. Oh, come on, friend. If that's not the height of hypocrisy, what is? So be careful. Don't play that game. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells a parable of workers in a vineyard. And some workers started at 6 in the morning, others started at 9, others at 12, and others one hour before quitting time at 5 p.m. were hired. And then at 6 p.m. at quitting time, the owner of the vineyard pays them all the same. And the guys who were hired at 5 p.m. were paid first. And so the guys who were hired at 6 in the morning thought, wow, we're going to get more. No, they got the same thing. And they began to grumble against the landowner, saying, wait a second, we bore the heat of the day. You should give us more. We earned it. And the landowner says, are you envious because I'm generous to those who I hired one hour before quitting time? Well, that parable is about grace. That parable is about the fact that even if I've lived a life of scandal and rebellion against Christ, if I genuinely repent and put my faith in Christ, he will forgive me even at the last hour and give me the gift of eternal life. Third point, well, I then don't understand why I should put my faith in Christ now. Why not sow my wild oats, pray for crop failure at the end of my life, and sort of believe in Jesus? Well, I'll tell you why. Because a life lived with Jesus is by far the best life, is by far the happiest, the most joyful, the most fulfilling life possible. And that's because God is good. He's good to the core. So... Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, about how believers will be judged. He also writes about that in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He talks about all of us standing before the judgment seat of God. All right. I am going to heaven not because I earn it. I'm going to heaven because of the grace of God, and I put my faith in Christ and receive that gift. But God still holds me responsible for what I do. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to, 11, 10 to 15, the Apostle Paul writes that some of us have works that are going to burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. And other of us have works that are going to be going through the fire of judgment, but they will be preserved like precious gold and stone. So, put your faith in Christ and live at the shopping mall. You have wasted your life.
Yeah, you'll be in heaven. You put your faith in Christ. You live at the shopping mall and just live to shop and shop till you drop. And if you think that's what Christ wants you to do with your life, you're naive. He calls us to be faithful and to serve Him. And yes, we will give an answer. I will give an answer. Well, how's He going to judge you, Cliff? You know, Cliff, you've done a lot of evangelism, but you're no Billy Graham the second, that's for sure. God doesn't judge us that way. Success for a follower of Christ is faithfulness. And in the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, it's real clear. Some have five talents, others have two talents, and others have one talent. So the brother who's two years younger than me went to Princeton Cornell Med School and he transplants livers and kidneys at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta. He's brilliant. He's far more intelligent than I'll ever be. We got a younger sister. She's handicapped. She's on the educational level of a third grader. So she's not going to be transplanting any livers and kidneys in the near future, that's for sure. And yet she loves Jesus, and she serves Him faithfully. Well, obviously your brother, who's a deeply committed follower of Christ, is a bigger success than your sister, who lives at home with your mother and bags groceries at the local grocery store. False. God will judge us according to our faithfulness, not according to our talents and abilities. The providential grace of God gives us gifts. We all have different gifts. So I'm not Billy Graham II. I'm Cliff, unique and different. And God will hold me responsible for how I use what he's given me, not for what I do with what he's not given me. Thank great, you. Great answer. Thanks for raising <laughs> Yes, sir. Hi. I hope you don't mind me asking a two-parter. But one, one of the things that I found so brilliant about your sermon this morning was explaining the difference between arrogance and tolerance. Uh-huh. And that ha- having tolerance is what Jesus would taught as opposed to becoming religious fanatics. Uh-huh. And I think one of the biggest problems in not just politics but society when it comes to non-believers and believers is those, well, science is here to disprove God and God wants to disprove science. And it just doesn't seem like – it seems like it's oil and water. And so I'm saying how do you reconcile – the two, when you're with somebody who you as a believer are trying to say, well, look, I believe in science just as much as you do, but I also happen to believe this. How do you, you know, how do, the person who is pure science or pure religion, how do you bring the two together, I guess, in a way that makes sense? You bet. And then the second question. Well, and, let, me, let me go with that one and then, go, then you'd be free to go sure. at it, the next one. All right. I like to look into a guy's face and say, have you ever gone on a scientific date? I can't say that I have, no. Well, I'd encourage you to ask I mean, there is a scientific method to that, I'm sure, but... (laughs) Wish I knew the answer to that one, I'll tell you that much. When I was at MIT last time, I met a guy who was dating his computer. Interesting. Really sad. All right, what is science? Science is a wonderful branch of knowledge, but it is a very small, very limited branch of knowledge scientifically proved to me that George Washington was the first president of the United States. You can't. Why? Because science is based on the repeatability of an experiment. Sure. That's how you determine whether something's scientifically true or false. And if you can't perform the same experiment in Calcutta, India, London, England, and Austin, Texas, it ain't science. So scientific knowledge is based on repeatability. What's historical knowledge based on? Not repeatability. You don't get Abraham Lincoln back to be assassinated by John Wilkes Booth in Ford Theater every September to prove that Lincoln really was shot by John Wilkes Booth. No. 
historical knowledge is based on the trustworthiness of eyewitness testimony. Somebody saw it happen, they recorded it. That's historical knowledge. Now, what is faith in God? Faith in God is based on philosophical, reasonable evidence, not scientific evidence. The reliability of Jesus Christ is based on historical evidence, not scientific evidence. So we have to acknowledge that there are different forms of knowledge. Scientific knowledge, historical knowledge, personal knowledge from experience. I mean, experience is crucial to your knowledge and my knowledge. How you experience reality. It's one of the reasons I believe in Jesus, because Jesus' definition of reality squares with my experience of reality. So if anybody ever tells you science contradicts the Bible, they either don't know what science is or they've not read the Bible. Is there any science in the Bible to contradict? No. You will find no biology, no geology, no chemistry, no physics anywhere in the Bible. That literary style is not used. So if anybody says to you, science contradicts the Bible, they either don't know what science is or they've not read the Bible because there is no scientific language anywhere in the Bible. Oh, what about Genesis 1? Genesis 1 is saying, in the beginning, God, not in the beginning, hydrogen. That's all it's saying. It is not giving a scientific description of how God created. Oh, yes, it is. It says God took a rib out of Adam and made Eve. You've got to be kidding me. You think that's a scientific description of how God created woman? That is not a scientific description. It's a highly theoretical description, symbolic description, exactly how God created Eve. I don't know. I really don't know. So you see, that's why I think it's helpful to clarify terms. What is science? What does the Bible say? What does it not say? Make sense? Absolutely. Okay, what's the second part? Great question. Great question. Um, the other question that I had is, uh, Pastor Cassidy had a great sermon through the Explore God series about why there is evil in the world and why God allows, or how could a God, if, they, if he exists, allow so much evil in this world? And I think he gave a brilliant explanation for that, but I think it's such a wide subject that I would like another opinion because I think there's just so much to be said on the subject. You're absolutely right. And that's the hardest question. And I'm so glad you liked Pastor Cassidy's sermon. I did. I did like it. Very good. You listen well, brother. You got a great pastor, that's for sure, and I'm not blowing smoke. It's true. All right. So, I do not know why God allowed evil and suffering. I do not know. Those are the first four words my oldest son learned. I do not know. Because guess what? That's the truth. Nobody here knows ultimately why God allowed evil and suffering. But there are a ton of points that can be made, as you pointed out. First point. God created this, and God saw that it was good. God created that, and God saw that it was good. God created this, and God saw that it was good. And God created that, and God saw that it was good. And Genesis chapter 1 jams on the fact that when God created, he did a good job. Unmistakably clear. Genesis chapter 3, we read about a fall. And it wasn't stubbing a toe. Ooh, I fell and stubbed my toe. No, this was a major fall. Human beings rebel against God. In other words, human beings tell God, take a hike. We think we can run our lives better. And God says, fine, I gave you free will. I'm taking a hike. I'm stepping back. And chaos filled the gap. 
And so, the vast majority of evil and suffering is a direct result of human irresponsibility. But we're also born in a cursed, messed up world. And so you move from Genesis to the book of Job. And Job suffers. He gets the rug ripped right out from underneath his feet, doesn't he? And then he's got some friends. And these friends come to Job, and they do something brilliant. They don't say anything. They sit with a guy. Then they made a mistake. They opened their mouths, started talking. And they had a watertight answer to the problem of suffering. Obviously, Job, you suffer because you've sinned. And obviously, there's a one-to-one correspondence between sin and suffering. So we all know that if you would just repent of your sin, oh, everything would just go right for you again. What they didn't know was in Job chapters 1 and 2, we have a record of Satan coming to God and saying, hey, you know what? You got Pavlov's dog down there. He happens to be named Job. He knows who butters his bread. That's the only reason he loves you. That's the only reason he obeys you because he knows where the goody-goodies come from. You take the goody-goodies away and he'll curse you to your face. And God says, no, I don't think that's true of Job. And so God allows Satan to rip the rug out from underneath Job's feet. And what's the book of Job about? I think the book of Job is about, first of all, God is fair, life is unfair, don't get the two mixed up. Now, for those of you writing notes, write that one down. It didn't, I didn't come up with that. I got that from Philip Yancey. His book, Disappointment with God, is a fascinating study of that. Life is unfair, God is fair, don't get the two mixed up. So when I suffer, if I clench my fist and wave it in God's face, that's misplaced anger. Life is unfair, God is fair, don't get the two mixed up. And the second point that I love about Job is his faith in God is based on the goodness of God's character, not on the circumstances of life. And that's the faith that God delights in. I mean, have you ever wondered why God delights in your faith and in my faith? I think it's rather clear. One of the biggest compliments I can give you is to trust you. Because when I trust you, it's a statement of how I view your character. And if I don't trust you, it's a statement, I don't think your character is reliable, so I'm not going to trust you. And so God longs for us to realize his character is good and to trust him to put our faith in him. It's fascinating in the Gospels to watch Jesus deal with the problem of suffering. Luke chapter 13 If you guys don't repent, then what happened to the folks who the Tower of Siloam crushed, something's worse going to happen to you. And the guys who got their blood mixed with their sacrifice, something's worse going to happen to you unless you repent. So yes, Jesus clearly points out that sin has some horrible consequences. But then in John chapter 9, the man born blind... And his disciples come up to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, Neither. This happened so that the power of God might be displayed in his life. Wow. There's a curveball. Now, ultimately, I do not know why God allowed evil and suffering. But I do believe that the all-powerful God chose to partially limit his power by creating us free. The all-powerful God chose to partially limit his power by creating us free. And evil and suffering are the result of free autonomous individuals abusing their freedom. Now, Jesus commands us 
to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to visit those who are sick and in prison, to make a difference in the lives of hurting, suffering people. And secondly, he gives us the ultimate solution for suffering. Forgiveness and eternal life in heaven, where there will be no more stillbirth, no more sickle cell anemia, no more HIV positive, but eternal life in the presence of God. Now, my atheist agnostic friend, let's go to the hospital. Come on, my atheist agnostic friend, let's go into the hospital room where the baby lies who's being shredded by some weird, horrible disease. Come, my atheist agnostic friend, what is your solution? Ultimately, you have none. Hunk of primordial slime evolved to a higher order is passing off into oblivion. Tough luck, kid. Your mama didn't read her horoscope. It's all fate, destiny, and chance. See, that's the despair of atheism. I, as a follower of Christ, walk to the other side of the bed, and I too will hold that child's hand and seek to comfort that child. But in Jesus Christ, I have a suffering God who gives a rip about suffering, so much so that he bled and died on a cross to forgive us and to give us eternal life in heaven, where there will be no more suffering, no more evil, no more injustice, no more death. So the simple question is, do you have God's solution to the very real problem of suffering? Do you have Jesus Christ? So those are some different angles on that very difficult question. Thank you so much Thank for you. raising both of them. Yes, sir. The uh, question is, what is the eternal destiny of those who might that commit suicide who profess to know Jesus Christ? Okay. And I uh, have con- a strong disagreement with wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ who say that if you commit suicide, you're going to hell. The Bible never teaches that, and I disagree strongly. I think it's real clear that at times there can be chemical imbalances and a human being can reach a point in their life where they think they would be happier dead than alive. And so they make that horrible decision. And to conclude that that person is going to go to hell because they committed suicide, I find to be shocking. Jesus never taught that. I don't think the Bible ever teaches that. Which gets to, why am I going to heaven? Oh, I tell you why I'm going to heaven. I'm going to go to heaven because the moment that I draw my last breath, I'm going to be feeding a hungry person. No. I'll tell you why I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be going to heaven because the last moment that I draw my last breath, I'm going to be telling the truth. No. I'm going to heaven for one reason. Because God loves this sinner so much that he sent his son Christ to bleed and die on a cross for my sin. I put my faith in him. And if it so happens that I happen to be telling a lie the moment I draw my last breath, it doesn't mean I'm going to hell. I'm saved by the grace of God. I am not saved by telling the truth just before I die. And if I get to the point in my life where I decide to commit suicide, is that a sin? Yes, it's a sin. Why? Because God gave me the gift of life to live. I'm not to end my life. I'm to serve God with every ounce of energy I have, with every last breath he gives me. I am to serve him. There's a purpose for life. But if I get so confused that I think I would be better dead than alive, I don't think that means I'm going to hell because Jesus in the Scriptures never taught that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Thank you, sir, for raising that very sensitive issue. Yes, sir. Hi, Cliff. I have a two-part question as well. Um, I recently put my faith in Christ, and I've been reading some of C.S. Lewis' works. He describes Christianity as a house with each denomination being a different room. Uh, what advice could you give in terms of finding and sifting through different denominations and finding the right room to worship? And also, why do Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox have different books in the Old Testament? Okay, good question. I happen to think you'd be very wise to make a deep commitment to be at Grace Covenant Church here in Austin, Texas. 
<laughs> Why? Why for you? Because you mentioned C.S. Lewis, and I, I went out for lunch with this precious family, the Cassidy family, and I got a wonderful synopsis of three of C.S. Lewis's books that I have never read, and I hate to tell you, I don't think I ever will read them because they're science fiction, but Pastor Cassidy just loves them. And so I opened the cover of this book, and there are all of his notes. I mean, the dude is thinking. He's thinking deep. He's thinking hard. Well, that's what you got to do if you want to get to know Christ better. If you want to follow Christ, that's what you got to do. So I'm real glad that you've accepted Christ recently, and I think you're in the right place to grow in that faith, to think it through, to work it through. That's what you got to do. All right? Okay. All right. Secondly, well, what about the Apocrypha? I mean, what about the Catholic Bible, those intertestamental books, you know, First and Second Maccabees and Judith? All right. Those books were added to the canon, to the Bible, in the 1500s at the Council of Trent, partially as a response to the Protestant movement. Mm-hmm. Now, guess what? If you want to read those books and view them as part of the Bible, go right ahead. Right? Let's not get weirded out over it. All right? Because they don't change anything, really. It's a fascinating history of what happened between about 200 B.C. and 50 B.C. Fascinating history. Nothing wrong with it, okay? Also, watch out for some Protestants who love to bash Catholics. Just watch out. Okay. It's called Protestant arrogance. You want to know why? Because the Protestant church started in the 1500s. And guess what? God was at work before 1500 and Martin Luther. <laughs> so some folks are making some big mistakes by getting into Catholic bashing. Now, do I have some strong fundamental disagreements with the Catholic, my Catholic friends? Yes, I do. What are those disagreements? Those disagreements are about the Virgin Mary praying to her. Those disagreements are about purgatory. I don't think the Bible talks about purgatory. Those disagreements have to do with papal infallibility. I mean, I respect the Pope highly, but I mean, papal infallibility when he speaks ex cathedra? No. Nobody has that kind of authority. Uh, Transubstantiation and communion, that the actual bread becomes the body of Christ and the grape juice or wine becomes the actual blood of Christ? No, I think it's pretty clear Christ is talking symbolically about this is my body, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But guess what? I was telling your wonderful pastor today that I am closer to the Monseigneur in my hometown than I am to any of the Protestant ministers. And he nailed it. He said, that's probably because the Catholic priest believes that Jesus is really Lord. And I said, absolutely correct. And the Protestant ministers think he's an interesting philosopher, teacher. No. Jesus is God in human form. And the majority of my Catholic brothers and sisters understand that. Too many of my Protestant minister friends don't understand that. And that's why I tell you you're in the right church. Because Jesus is worshipped here. The Bible is taught as the Word of God. You're encouraged to connect with God's Holy Spirit and grow. That's what you want to do. And if you move from Austin, find a church that's like this, where the Scriptures are taught, where Jesus is Lord, and where you're encouraged to follow Him. Okay, thank you. You bet. Yes, sir. Hi, Cliff. Long-time listener, second-time caller. (laughs) (laughs) I saw you at UT a while back. You bet. I I, I lobbed you something, and 
It's just a mess with you. Um, I'm actually going to just read what I wrote down, wrote down right here because I haven't articulated this yet. Um, so how do you, as an apologist and as a man, handle the foundations of your, of your faith being knocked out from under you um, with being proved wrong, for example, like if you had any statistics or something that you believed, um, you know, historical accuracy. I mean, I know you talk a lot about external and internal uh, consistency between books and that kind of thing. Do you ever come across a scenario where you had that knocked out from under you and you were, you were wrong and you go, oh, man, that just really rattled my faith. I fell apart. Or, you know, where do you ultimately rest in what you know to be truth? Oh, man, brother, I'll tell you. I've, been, I've made so many mistakes over the past 30 years talking on campuses. I could keep you here the rest of the night telling you all about my mistakes. I'll just give you the most recent mistake I made. University of Arizona, I stood up and said, the historical evidence for Jesus having existed is stronger than the historical evidence for Tiberius Caesar having existed. Because, and then I gave some statistics about How many people have written about Tiberius Caesar versus how many people have written about Christ? Well, I got that information from a book by Gary Habermas. And there was this grad student in ancient history sitting out there. And he went back and checked. And he came out the next day with a term paper he'd written showing all the evidence that indeed there were many people who had written about Tiberius Caesar. So egg all over my face. I went back and wrote an email to Gary Habermas, who teaches out at Liberty University. I said, what's the story? Well, I mean, why'd you write this? He emails me back an email. Cliff, I didn't write it. My graduate assistant wrote it. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's, that's an example of I've got to get back to the source documents. I can't be running around getting information from different well-meaning Christian authors who haven't done their homework and gone back to original source documents. And I made a mistake. I went and got information that was not verified by studying the original source documents. And so that was an egg all over my face. So that's the most recent example of a mistake that I made. Okay. Thanks. You bet. Yes, ma'am. Thanks, Cliff, for being here. Um, I, too, have a two-part question. I'll ask the first one first. In a conversation with a friend, she had told me that one of her family members is um, gay. And so along in the conversation that night, I said, well, have you told her that it was a sin? And my friend said that it wasn't a sin as long as she's not participating in a homosexual relationship. Can you speak to that? You bet. Thanks for raising it. First point, I am sorry for all the gay bashing that has gone on in the name of Christianity. That is false. The Bible clearly insists that all people have equal value, not because they're heterosexual, but because we're created in the image of God. And so I have to apologize to my homosexual friends for the way homosexuals have been pictured as inferior dirt by, quote, Christians, unquote. That is false, totally false. Second point. In the same way that God created us for a purpose, and that purpose is to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors, ourselves. God has created our sexuality for a purpose, and that purpose is outlined in Genesis 2.24. We read, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. A 
very clear, very positive statement about God's purpose for our sexuality. This means that I, through my heterosexual lust, we all have twisted and perverted the gift of sex that God has given us. But the great news of the gospel is that God loves this sexual pervert so much through, because of my heterosexual lust that he sent his son Christ to bleed and die on a cross for my sin, to forgive me. And he did that for my homosexual and bisexual friends as well. University of Arizona, a woman steps out of the crowd and says, Wait a second, Cliff, don't you realize that when you say what you just said, you are attacking the identity of my lesbian friend here and myself. Don't you realize how evil that is, how wrong that is? I said, oh, I, I, I think I'm beginning to understand. What you're telling me is that you were born gay. She said, exactly. I said, okay, fine. And your argument is that because you were born that way, it's right. Yes, Cliff, that's correct. Because I was born this way, it's right. All right, fine. Then let me ask you one question, ma'am, I said. Do you think that I, as a heterosexual male, was born with a sex drive that motivates me to have sex with just one woman? <laughs> Boy, you guys are quiet tonight. <laughs> of course not. I don't know a single guy here who was born with a sex drive to have sex with just one woman. My husband. Your husband. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, the question is, not, what was I born with? Because I was born a mixed-up kid. I got a lot of great drives, and I got a lot of messed-up drives. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you obviously haven't had children, or you haven't worked at a daycare center. Because <laughs> if you work at a daycare center, and if you have children, you know that they're Jekyll and Hyde's. Sweetest, sweetest little boys and girls. And then they can kick sand in each other's face and throw blocks at each other and decapitate each other. <laughs> so we are mixed up kids. And so now the question is, am I willing to allow God to define the purpose of my sexuality, the purpose of my life, the purpose of making money, the purpose of having power, the purpose of having a career? Or am I going to play God and define it all? And what I find so interesting today is that I am accused consistently on university campuses of being unjust. Why? Because I have the audacity to say that if you have a drive, it's not necessarily good. And you see, that in our culture today is unjust. It's oppressive. And they're exactly right. It is oppressive in their twisted way of thinking for Jesus to say, Sex with one person of the opposite sex within the context 
of marriage, of a lifelong commitment. Why is that oppressive? Because I want to do it my way. And if I want to do it my way, don't you dare tell me that my way is wrong. You see what a twisted view, definition of oppression, of injustice that is? That is really twisted. Biblically, injustice is denying the dignity of a human being and wreaking havoc in their life. But our culture has redefined it. Our culture defines injustice today as you saying that one of my drives is wrong. Baloney. If you have a drive to murder somebody, that is wrong. That is unjust. Not me telling you that you shouldn't murder. It's that simple. Thanks for raising that issue. Oh, can I ask the second? You bet. Go ahead. So um, I work with women who are in homosexual relationships right now. Um, one of which uh, they're, I guess they're married and they also have children. Yeah. If given the opportunity to talk to them about God and Christianity, how do I speak to them in truth and love about their, their lifestyle? Right. That's a fascinating question. What I would do is I would get them involved in a Bible study and I would not answer their question about homosexuality right off the bat. Instead, I would say, I'll see you next Saturday and we will continue to study the Gospel of John. Why? Because I want them to get to know Jesus. And I want them to see his love and his truth, and they're going to be confronted by both the truth and the love of God. And then, if they can come to know Christ, then I'm convinced they will begin to see why the lesbian homosexual lifestyle is not an option. But if I jump the gun too fast, I think that they're going to dismiss me and they will probably not read the gospel, and that's what I don't want to have happen. Now, some people would say, oh, Cliff, that's cowardly. Baloney. That has nothing to do with being cowardly. It has to do with where a person is and trying to help them take the next step towards Christ. One of the first issues that I had to face, deal with in that area is speaking on university campuses. I am convinced to the root of my being that the Bible is the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. But I can promise you, for me to try and jam that down someone's throat who doesn't believe that is an exercise in futility. And I'll never forget a student at the University of Texas, Austin, who came up to me and said, Cliff, I'm a senior now, and now I have put my faith in Christ. But when I was a freshman, I didn't believe in God, I didn't believe in Christ. And I asked you, what is the Bible? And you didn't answer my question. Instead, you gave me the evidence that the Gospels are reliable. And then you challenged me to go home and read them. And that's what I did. I went home and read the Gospels, and because of that, I put my faith in Christ. So you see, you've got to be shrewd with people, right? You've got to... If you don't agree with what I'm saying, and you might not, and, and that's fine, I would encourage you to read John chapter 4, Jesus dealing with a woman outside the town of Sychar. At the end of his conversation, how much did that woman understand about the Trinity the deity of Christ, the cross, precious little. But she met Jesus, 
She was so drawn to Jesus that she went running back into her town saying, Come meet a man who I met. And they came flocking out to meet Jesus. Could this be the Messiah? How much knowledge did she have about Jesus? Huh. Precious little. So that's what I feel called to do. Get people to look at Jesus. And then, yes, of course, we're going to explain why the homosexual lifestyle, why adultery, why premarital sex is wrong. But maybe that'll be down the road a bit after a person has had a serious look at who Jesus is. Thank you. Thanks for raising that. Yes, sir. Uh, Two-part question, actually. Um, Can you truly be sure that the Christian God exists? And um, if not, where does the proof end and the leap of faith begin? Great question. Can you prove to me that your taste buds tell you the truth when you drink sour milk? Can you prove to me that that milk is sour just because your taste buds say, <laughs> no. no. Can you prove to me that your eyesight perceives reality? No. no. Can you prove to me that your rational mind tells you the truth about reality? No. No. You see, to prove means to show that it cannot be another way. And I can prove almost nothing in life. But that doesn't mean I stop thinking. Rather, as a thinking human being, although I do not base my life on proof, I do base my life on evidence. The evidence is my taste buds do tell me the truth, and that's when the milk is sour, I spit it out and I don't drink anymore. The evidence is that my rational mind does tell me the truth about reality. That's why I want to be as reasonable as possible. And the evidence is my eyesight does tell me the truth about reality. That's why I don't try to walk through trees, but rather walk around them. Because otherwise I will have a very painful encounter with that tree. So I base my life on evidence, not proof. And the overwhelming evidence is that God exists. The innate drive for meaning in life. Moral absolutes. Have you seen the movie Crash? Okay, that's a fascinating movie, isn't it? Right at the end there, right, that police officer who sexually abused the woman, yeah. right, is crawling under the car where she's trapped. The gasoline is there. The flames are coming. Now, why? Why should that white police officer save that African-American woman? She can accuse him and press charges against him for the sexual molestation that he committed the night before, Right? Plus, the flames are coming. Preserve your life, buddy. But instead, he works hard to free her and to pull her out. Every instinct was saying, let her burn to death, save your hide. But he follows what he should do, what he ought to do. See, that's conscience tying him into a real value. Well, the only way that value can be real is if there is some type of God to create it. And then to give us a conscience so that we understand what that is. It's a fascinating study of right and wrong, that movie. Okay. Moral, objective morals demand a moral lawgiver. It points to God's existence. So it's because of evidence like that that I believe in God. And then it's because of the historical evidence of the way he lived, taught, died, and rose from the dead that I take a step of faith and believe in Jesus. Now remember... 
Every one of your buddies has faith. Every atheist has faith. Every agnostic has faith. Meaning by that, everybody has to answer the questions, where do I come from? Why am I here? Now that I am here, how am I going to live my life ethically? And what about the hereafter? Does it exist or not? Nobody can prove what they believe is true. Hopefully, though, we follow the evidence. So that is what I would encourage you to do. Follow the evidence. Make the most reasonable decision you can. Thank you. You bet. Yes, sir. Um, well, this confused me because I never really heard this, but um, if a baby does not come out into the world, so it does not have time to accept Christ or not, Christ or not what happens? Good question. Boy, you're a thinker. Way to think, bud. I like it a lot. Now, you make sure you keep thinking all life long, all right? That's awesome. Okay, so you're asking me, how is God going to judge a baby who dies, right? Okay, and they never had the opportunity to put their faith in Christ, right? Okay, now, to be honest with you, the Bible never answers that question. Okay, so I can't tell you this is what the Bible says. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, King David, who loses his first child who was born to Bathsheba, says, I will go to be with him. I'm going to see him again. So I lean towards believing that all babies who die, all the babies who've been aborted, are going to be in heaven. Secondly, when you read the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like a little child, You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So obviously the childlike trust of a little child, Jesus praised and commended highly. And so that's the second reason I believe that children who die at an early age, before the account, age of accountability, will definitely be in heaven. Now, let's quickly talk about age of accountability. That's a big idea. What does that mean? Max was in kindergarten, and he came home on the school bus, and Mom had prepared a beautiful dinner, delicious dinner for Max. Max sat down and took a bite of dinner and said, ugh, this tastes like blankety blank. He used a very dirty word. But Mom was wise enough to realize that Five-year-old Max didn't have the foggiest idea what that word meant. He had heard that word on the school bus coming home. Paul was a senior in high school. Paul came home after the first day of class of his senior year, sat down, ate a bite of mom's dinner, and said, Ugh, this tastes like blankety-blank, and he used the same dirty word. You see, that's a totally different issue, isn't it? Because Paul knew exactly what that dirty word meant, and he used it to describe mom's cooking. But Max didn't have the faintest idea what that dirty word meant, so he's not responsible in the same way that Paul is. So you see, what Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48 is, from the one who's been given much, much is required. So we're not all going to be judged the same way. God holds us responsible for what we know not for what we don't know. 
Boy, that was a long answer to a very nice question you asked. Thank you so much for asking. You're welcome. <laughs> yes, sir. All right. This um, will be the last question. All right. Um, how, do you, how do you give somebody, not advice, but as far as how our sins justified and that one sin is worse than another sin, therefore I'm going to choose to do the less sin because it's a lesson. How does God, how do I tell somebody how God views how bad a sin is? That's a fascinating question. I used to make a big mistake. Here's another mistake I used to make on, in answering people's questions. I used to say, lust is just as bad as adultery. No, it is not. Lust is just as bad as rape. No, it is not. Hatred is just as bad as murder. No, it is not. Lust separates me from God. Adultery and rape separate me from God. All sin is equal in the sense that all sin separates me from God. But the consequences of lust are nothing compared to the consequences of rape. The consequences of hatred are nothing compared to the consequences of murder. So no, all sin is not the same in its ethical consequences. Yes, all sin is the same in the the sense that all sin separates me from God, but it is far worse for me to rape a woman than it is for me to lust after her. It's far worse for me to murder a man than it is for me to hate him. Okay, now there was another point I had that I forgot. Can you ask that question one more time? It's a great question. How How do I tell somebody that they say, well, this is worse than that, therefore... Um, or I cannot, be, I cannot be forgiven because this is worse than that as opposed to, hey, that wasn't that bad. Uh, it's not a big deal. I'm, I'm okay because it was worse than what he or she did. Yep. I got a ton of people who go to our church at home in Connecticut who are out of, who are out of a Catholic background, and they would argue that, yes, what you're saying is true. There are certain sins that are just not forgivable. They are off the charts, so God cannot forgive. All right, well, a passage that I would encourage you to turn to is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honoring glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, now here's one of my, been, one of my biggest problems. I have done some really stupid boneheaded things that I'm real grateful nobody here in this room knows about. All right? So here's what happens. It's called guilt. 
So I turn to Jesus and I ask him for forgiveness. My problem is I still feel guilty. A lot of people say to me, well, Cliff, I just can't forgive myself for what I did. Well, guess what? That means nothing. I can't forgive myself. Because guess what? We're not the judge. So here's the real issue. The real issue for me and for all of those people, I think, who ask me that question is, am I going to elevate myself above the judge of the universe and judge myself? Or am I going to allow God to be judge and to accept His grace and forgiveness? See, it's that simple. And a lot of us, and I'm pretty sure there are some of us here tonight, we get into playing that game. We elevate ourselves above God as the judge. And in 1 John 1, 9, we read, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We can't accept that. Why? Because we have elevated ourselves above God, and we cannot accept the fact that He has truly forgiven us. And that's rubbish. That's why John, in Revelation chapter 12, calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. He loves to heap false guilt on us. I don't care what you've done. The promise of Christ is that if you genuinely repent, He will forgive you. Now, don't fall into the trap of elevating yourself above the judge of the universe and saying, no, I'm not forgiven because it was so bad what I did. You don't do that because you're not the judge. God is. And when He says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. Matt. Thank you, Cliff. Uh, it is, it's great to have Cliff here. It's, I think it's been over a decade since he's been here. He's, he'll be back in Austin the last full week of November. I think that's the 18th through the 22nd. It's down at the University of Texas on the West Mall. And um, I'm sure he'd love for you to join him. Usually you work like from 11 to 1 or so. 12 to 5. 12 to 5. <laughs> My two-hour shift sounds a lot better. <laughs> a little, 12 to 5. Okay, five hours for five Five days there, I think. So anyway, uh, you, you, can, um, you can join him again then. Uh, feel free to hang around if you'd like to, to, to talk and uh, if you have some more questions. Let me, if you don't mind, again, uh, pray for Cliff. He's going to be going down to uh, Texas State in San Marcos tomorrow and have that open-air conversation for about a week or so. And uh, let's pray for him and his family as well. Lord Jesus, we lift up Cliff to you. We're grateful for um, the way you've gifted him and what he's chosen to do with those gifts. We'd ask that you would bless him, and bless him indeed. Allow him to have a sharp mind and uh, a tender heart towards the people that ask questions. We'd ask that you would bless his family, that you would give his wife um, a special grace in, the, in, in your presence in, his, in her life, as now she's separated from, from Cliff and away with family issues. And so we ask that you would, would protect and provide for the Connectly family. We are so pleased to have them and enjoy them and to know them like we do. Uh, Lord, thanks for our time today. Let your nagging questions continue to haunt us until we find answers, until we find rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for coming. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.